So what's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, very happy to be with you all this beautiful sunny day. Man, I have like a really healthy respect for large bodies of water. I know how to swim, but I'm just very cautious around large bodies of water. The first time I had like a real near-death experience happened at Action Park. And for those of you who grew up in the 90s in New York and New Jersey, uh, you know what Action Park was like. The nickname for Action Park was Class Action Park <laughs> because of all of the lawsuits that happened. Their sole philosophy at Action Park was to take whatever ride existed and dial it up to the max. So regular amusement parks have a wave pool. Action Park had a tsunami wave pool. <laughs> I'll never forget being a teenager and being in a wave pool, the tsunami wave pool, and hearing the alarm go off and everybody starts cheering and celebrating. Next thing I know, I was fighting for my life. <laughs> I barely made it to some random stranger's boat and like held on for dear life for the next uh, five minutes until those tsunami waves passed over me. The second time I had like a near-death experience actually happened uh, while vacationing in Jamaica, uh, while water skiing. Uh, not the place that most people uh, meet their demise, but I'll, I'll never forget, um, I'm a pretty competitive person, probably to a fault sometimes, and I'll never forget being on the boat with my wife and watching other people water ski before me. And I was like, when it's my turn, I'm going to put on a show. And I told the short Jamaican man who was driving the boat, I said, hey man, when it's my turn, just gun it. Now, mind you, I've never gone water skiing before. <laughs> But it looked easy, it looked very easy. And I got on the skis and homie did exactly what I asked him to do, he gunned it. And for about 2.7 seconds, I looked like an Olympic style water skier. Immediately after that, I descended under the abyss of the ocean and I was being dragged for about 10 seconds with so much water you know, being forced into my nose, into my mouth, that there was like a real moment where I was like, is this how I go out <laughs> in the Caribbean Sea? Mercifully, the boat driver stopped, and he turned around, and he looked at me. He said, Jordan, let go of the rope, man. <laughs> number one, apologies for my very poor Jamaican accent. Uh, number two, it, it's a very simple concept that, for whatever reason, I didn't understand at the time. But the easiest way to not drown while water skiing is to let go of the rope. People do it all the time. They let go of the rope, and then they have to trust that the boat is going to swing back around and pick them up. Now, I wish it wasn't true, but in a lot of ways, the story of me dragging, being dragged underwater is a metaphor for my life. I love to feel like I am in control. I love to feel like I am in control. And I would prefer to be dragged through an uncontrollable situation than have to let go and trust a plan that I am unaware of. No matter what life throws at me, I have determined that even though I'm not an expert in it, I will try to control the situation, even when me trying to control it makes the situation worse. You know, maybe it's fear, I think, in my own life. Fear that if I don't control things, things will not turn out the way that I want them to. Or maybe, to be perfectly honest, sometimes I think it's a feeling of unworthiness that I have. That unless I control a situation, I don't really feel like I deserve support. Or that 
things, people will help me out if I truly need it. But bigger than those two, I think it's a feeling of a lack of trust. I'm scared to let go, count on other people, and if I'm being totally honest, to count on God when I can't control a situation, to believe that unless I control every single aspect of the situation, things will turn out okay. And the problem is I have been dragged in anxiety and trying to control things that I know I can't control. Here's a few things about me that might also be true of you. I prefer certainty over uncertainty. I love knowing what the next thing is going to be. My wife and I, whenever we're driving anywhere, she knows, like, unless there's, like, a navigation on the screen, just tell me what's coming up next. I need to know what is coming up next. Even more true in my own life, personally, I hate the feeling of uncertainty of how things are going to unfold. So I would rather cling to the false sense of control than to let go and to say that I don't know what's going to happen next. Especially true when it comes to following Jesus. So much of what it means to follow Jesus means that your life is uncertain. Jesus gives commands of obedience oftentimes before it's apparent of why he asked you to do that thing. Another thing that's true about me is I prefer feeling powerful over being vulnerable. I, I hate the feeling of being vulnerable, of needing someone else, of not being able to do something on my own. Here's a dirty little secret about everybody who works in ministry. This is true for 99.99% of people who work full-time in vocational ministry. They are terrible at receiving help. Not just like average, like they're really bad at receiving help. And I've been confronted with my own, in my own life, in times where I've, I've needed help, like I've really needed it, and I didn't want to say anything about it because I was embarrassed, because I just really prefer to feel like I'm powerful, like I got it all together, than to be vulnerable. Another thing that's true about me that might also be true about you is I prefer independence over dependence. I don't want to be dependent on anybody else. If I'm being totally honest, I don't even want to be dependent on God. I want other people to be dependent on God, but I want God to lay my life out in such a way that I don't need him. You know, one of the things that one of my friends, Rich Velota, says about prayer, and we'll get to the Lord's Prayer at the end of today's message, is that the reason that God calls us and asks us to ask for daily bread is because we are meant to be daily dependent on God, but we would rather have a Costco relationship with Jesus. Go to Costco, stack up on as much as you want, and then have to come to God every now and then, but to stack our cupboards with everything that we need so we don't have to be dependent on God. And what it translates into is us grasping for some sense of control over our lives that we were never meant to have. Now, here's the craziest part about all of this as I thought about it from my own life. The Christian life is meant to be a life completely full of dependence on God. As a matter of fact, there is no version of the Christian life in which you would be in control, have full certainty, and not have to be vulnerable and dependent on God. The purest state of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be reliant on him, not just for God to provide, but also for wisdom, for forgiveness of sins. You know, one of the things that I was talking to a friend about years ago was this concept of people feel so laid down with what they have done and they can't seem to forgive themselves for something that they had done. And their life is racked with guilt and dread because they haven't forgiven themselves. And to hear the gospel message that it's not whether you forgive yourself, it's that God has forgiven you and he has the final word. Deep down inside, what they are functioning with is a form of rejection of God that unless I say I'm forgiven, I'm not really forgiven. 
So yes, I can read the scripture, I can look at Jesus on the cross, and unless I forgive myself, it doesn't matter. What is that other than us trying to take control over our lives? So last week we started a series on the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at God, who is the Holy Spirit, and what his role is in our lives. And our hope over these next number of weeks is that we would really develop a better theology, a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is meant to do in our lives. John 14, 15 through 18 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In this text, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to his closest followers, and Jesus tells them that he is coming to them. He will be with them. He will be in them, and this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, very quickly as a recap, last week, one of the things that we mentioned was paramount about understanding the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is not an experience. It's not that you went to church and the music was banging and the spirit was really present that day because the band was really, the band rehearsed. Like, it's actually just the band rehearsed. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is God. He is a person. It's a he, not, not an it. It's not someone that, or something that we can manipulate to fit into our agenda, to give us an emotional high for the day. It is a God, the Holy Spirit, who lives on the inside of us, who is meant to guide us. And what Jesus talks about here in this scripture is so many profound truths that it's not even like a junior version of God. It is God himself who lives on the inside of you. And this is what makes the Christian life possible. It is the essence of the Christian life to be led, to be guided, to be directed, to be strengthened, to be comforted by God, the Holy Spirit. And it is real God, not a replacement or a watered down version. You know, when I was younger, my dad used to always say that um, a fool and his money soon depart. And I remember getting paychecks from my jobs, and he was like, man, that money burning a hole in your pockets, isn't it? (laughs) And it really felt like it was hot. I just had to get it out and just spend it. And as soon as I would get my check, I would go to the check cashing place, and I would hop on the train and go to Fordham Road. I'll never forget one time I was on Fordham. I had bought a bunch of stuff, and I had $20 left. And I see this guy come up to me, and he has this beautiful chain. It's like glimmering in the light. And he's like, yo, I just got this chain from Macy's. It's $500. And I was like, ah, I don't have $500. He was like, how much do you have? I was like, 20 He was like, it's all yours. <laughs> I was like, I am a master negotiator. I am, I am good. And for about two weeks, yo, you couldn't tell me nothing. I wore that chain every single day on the outside of my shirt, I would stand up to sharpen my pencil in front of the class just so everybody can see my outfit and my chain. But about two weeks later, I started to notice that the chain started to get like a little green. It was a little olive. And I was like, I didn't know that gold tarnished. I'm surprised. I got sold a bootleg chain. The difference between the real and the fake is how long something lasts. When Jesus says in the scripture, he remains with you and will be in you, then it means that it's not dependent on the season. It's not dependent on the weather. It's not dependent on how your life is going in any specific day or or week or month. 
He is God, and it's going to remain with you, and he is the real thing, not some imitation, watered-down version. And that is a profound concept for us to think about, that for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, what God has given each one of us is himself. And he wants us to rely on him, to be guided, to be corrected, to be led, to be comforted, to be strengthened. In verse 16 of John 14, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Or some translations say comforter. Other translations say helper. And other translations say counselor. Now, all of these translations are accurate, but in and of themselves, that one word for the Holy Spirit that Jesus is trying to describe the Holy Spirit as, it's all of these. And what the translators are letting us in on is that the Holy Spirit cannot be just surmised to one small little concept It's much bigger than our brains um, can even understand. But all of these words point to one thing, whether it's the advocate, the comforter, the helper, or um, the counselor, all of these words point to one very strong concept that I want us getting, and it's this. He is meant to be actually depended on and relied on, trusted and followed, even if and including the times where you would go in a different direction. He is our advocate and our comforter and our helper and our counselor. You know, before I became a pastor, I was a lawyer, and I'll never forget that being an advocate for someone else in court is really, it's like a profound privilege. And I never took it for granted um, when I was in court with people, and I had the chance of representing them. And I'll never forget um, one time I was talking to one of my clients before a case, and he was like really, really nervous. And... It wasn't like a murder trial. I'm not Johnny Cochran. It was like a speeding ticket or something. (laughs) But he was like so, so, so nervous. And I said, yo, bro, relax. I am your advocate. All you have to do in court is just sit there. I'll do all the talking. He was like, for real? I was like, let me call my office and make sure your check cleared. But yes, if if the check cleared, (laughs) then yes. All you got to do is sit there. Because I'm your advocate, you can relax. Like, Because I'm your advocate, all you have to do is sit there and let someone else handle the complexity of the situation besides yourself. For a client to come to court nervous as if they had to to present a case, it would be foolish. When scripture tells us that God is our advocate, he is our comforter, he is our helper, he gives us strength when we have no strength on our own. He gives us clarity when we have nothing but confusion on our own. It means that we are meant to rely on him actually and really. It means that in the the journey of life that you and I are to let go of the rope and to trust him. You know, last week, as I was thinking and preparing for this and coming to verse 18 where Jesus was saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. That is such a profound and loaded word that Jesus is saying this. That without the Holy Spirit, you are like an orphan in the first century. A first century orphan had no way of providing for themselves. They were completely helpless. This is because the economy at that time was one based on inheritance, not earning. So the only way to be rich was to have rich parents, that they would leave you a lot of land. But if you were an orphan, that means that you were cut off from inheriting anything, which means there were no rags to riches stories for orphans. They were locked into a system in which they would never be able to do anything other than rely on the goodness and the grace of other people. So Jesus says, without the Holy Spirit, you are helpless. 
you are unable to care and provide for yourself. And last week, as I was wrapping up the message, I was thinking to myself, you know, this Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, I'm going to teach people how to listen to the Holy Spirit. And as I was thinking and praying this week about that, I felt a strong impression from the Lord that with all the distraction that we have around us, and those are many things that we need to talk about, and we'll probably talk about that next week, there is something else that blocks us from walking in the fullness of the Spirit. John 7, 38 through 39 says this, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. So when Jesus describes the ministry, the work, and how the Holy Spirit functions in our lives, he says the Holy Spirit is like a stream of living water that flows inside of us. But here's the thing about living water, about any stream. Water always and only fills low and empty places. Part of the reason that you and I are not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit is we're full of ourselves. Here's a big idea for today. In order for us to be full of the Holy Spirit, we must be empty of ourselves. The biggest obstacle to you and I walking in the power of the Spirit is that we are already full of ourselves. We are committed to clinging to the rope of power and control of our lives. And all the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit um, is alive and active, we're just too full of our own opinions. We're just too full of our self-will. The biggest obstacle to you having a life fueled, full, directed, guided, nurtured by the Holy Spirit is your own self-will. So I want to define self-will as a stubborn sticking to one's own desired outcomes or ideas. I'll say that again. It is the stubborn sticking to one's own desired outcomes or ideas. You know, I've realized how close I am to a different outcome in my life in a lot of situations. And if I'm being honest, a lot of times when I'm angry at God is because things are not going the way that I think they should go. Now, very quickly, we'll get to this in a second. This is not to say you should not have desires. This does mean that you should not cling to your desired outcome. And by that, I mean a lot of people, a lot of people grade God's faithfulness based on whether or not their outcome comes to pass. I've talked to so many people who have left faith and they've lost faith in God. And in some ways, the collapse of their faith is actually the beginning of a new faith, one in which they are no longer clinging to their self-will and their own outcomes. You know, in my own life, I think about so many times where I have missed out on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to me because Jordan was clinging to his own outcome. You know, when my wife and I first got married, she, she moved up to New York from D.C., and I'll never forget being at like a, a party with her and her friends. And I, I was so nervous thinking about she was leaving D.C., all of her friends and all of the things that she loved about that area, coming to a brand new place just because this knucklehead dude was going to start a church in New York City. And I was so nervous that I, we were going to quote unquote fail. And I kept on thinking to myself, what happens if, if we fail? And I was so committed to not, quote-unquote, failing, that I completely blew through so many rhythms of rest, of trusting God, and I missed out on the Holy Spirit so much because I was clinging to the outcome of, quote-unquote, success. 
you know, the first year, I'll never forget talking to my wife, and we were supposed to go to this. She got, we got invited to this wedding in India, and she was really excited about going, and I was like, well, maybe you can go for like a day or two. She was like, who flies to India for a day? Like, let's do two weeks in India. And my biggest reason to not go was because I was trying to control things here. I was trying to be around and cling on to all of the different ropes that I thought I was needing to hold on to. And finally, at the end of the conversation, she said, Jordan, do you realize we haven't talked about anything else other than this church? And I was like, that's not true. I was like, we've talked about a hundred things. She was like, name one. <laughs> and I, and I, in that moment, I, I, I couldn't think about anything. I was like, my life at that point was so gripped by fear of what would happen if I wasn't trying to control everything. And my coach, a uh, pastor friend of mine said, Jordan, if what you have built in the last year goes away because you went on a vacation, then what you built was absolute garbage and it needs to collapse anyway. Other times in my life, I've missed out on a ministry of the Holy Spirit that was telling me like, Jordan, you need to rest. You need a Sabbath. You need to delight. You need to go out and enjoy New York City. If you want to be here for the long term, you need to actually trust the Holy Spirit to do what he says he's going to do. Jesus built his church, not you. Other times in my life, it's not a job or it's not a search of success. It's, it's my kids. It's one of the paradoxes of parenting, one of the most painful things about parenting is realizing that your kids will go in different directions than what you had planned for them. I'll never forget the last year my son came home, my oldest, and man, my, he just rocked me and my wife. He told us that he was a Nets fan. And <laughs> we fasted and we prayed and we... <laughs> poured oil on his bed, olive oil on his bed. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, um, one, we did bring him back over to the Knicks, praise God. But two, <laughs> we back, we back. But number two, um, in all seriousness, though, I, in both of my kids' lives, um, like when they were born, I immediately had a vision for how their life could go or should go. And there's so many times where I am like destabilized by their challenges, by the things that happen in their lives, by these are their own little people. They have their own life, their own. God has put a vision in, in inside of them for their own life. And I'm so sometimes just stuck with my own outcome for their lives. And I don't experience any freedom from the Holy Spirit because I have already determined the way that God should take their lives in. And I'm closed to the Holy Spirit. He cannot fill my life. He cannot fill my parenting because I'm already closed off to how it should go. Other times in life, it's not my kids. It's just all areas of my life where I am closed to any, to any other possibility or outcome other than the specific one that I have determined. And this past week, uh, my wife and I, we went and spent some time with some friends and, and we journaled and we wrote down, what are the things that I am attached to? What are the specific outcomes that I am attached to, that I am struggling to submit over to the Lord. And I thought it was going to be just a couple of lines, and I was writing pages and pages of the things, the outcomes that I was attached to. So here's what I want to invite you to this week. I want you to spend some time, and I want you to answer that question. What outcomes am I attached to? You will find out where you are closed off from God. In order for us to be full of the Holy Spirit, we must first be empty of ourselves. And part of that means laying down our self-will for his will. The will that we are unsure of what's going to happen, it's not certain, it's going to require that we're vulnerable, but in order for us to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, 
We need to first empty ourselves of our own self-will. Two big caveats, though. I really want to make sure that nobody hears me saying something that I'm not saying. It is not bad to have desires, hopes, and wishes. God puts desires in your heart. God loves to answer prayer. I'm reading 1 Samuel right now in my own private time, and I'm reading the, in the beginning of the book. It starts out with this woman named Hannah, and Hannah is praying day and night to God for God to give her a son, and she's indignant. She will not be deterred, and she's holding on to this prayer that she has for the Lord, and God answers her prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us, this is how you should pray, that you should always pray and not give up. It is not a bad thing to have desires. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is praying the same prayer over and over again. Father, if it is possible, let this cup, the crucifixion, let it pass over me. There is nothing wrong with having desire. Desires are good. Desires are meant to be confessed to the Lord. You should have prayer requests that you go to God over and over and over and over and over again. But Jesus says something at the end of that prayer that I want us to attach to the end of our prayers at a certain point. It's nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. That is this paradox of both having a will, of not pretending that you don't care what happens, because you definitely care what happens, but you are not attaching the goodness of God to the specific outcome that you have determined. And here's why this is so important, because there have been prayers that I have prayed decades ago that I am praising God that he said no to. And if we give ourselves the benefit of time and space, we will see that God's will is better than our will. That's the second thing about this. A lot of times, I think when we pray for God's will to be done in our lives, I think implicit in that, we think God's will is worse. Like we think, all right, my will is amazing, but your will be done. <laughs> and there's so many times in my own life where God's will for me, I mean, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who he loves. I mean, I'm just blown away by what God has done for me by laying down my own self-will. This does not mean that it always turns out to be immediately better for you. But I am fully convinced that one day, if you will, give, if you will have the courage to lay down your self-will, when you look back over the decades of your life, if the Lord gives you a long life, if you are surrounded by those who you love and who loved you on your deathbed, you will never regret having trusted God. But think about it the other way. How much regret you would carry to have spent a life avoiding the will of God. You know, I was talking to a woman this morning who, in just one week, got an amazing promotion for her job, and she got engaged. And somebody else in the, in the it early was like, Lord, I've seen what you've done for others. <laughs> hey. Like, God does bless people, and one of the best things about being a pastor is I not only just walk with people through the heaviness of life, but I get to see the prayer requests answered, and it's amazing. Like, God's will for your life is not necessarily worse than your will. It's just oftentimes different than your will. And God wants you to experience the fullness of his life for you. He wants you to experience the real power of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't happen because the Holy Spirit functions like a stream, and he only fills low and empty places. And so one of the ways that I was thinking about how do we experience the actual fullness of the Holy Spirit and how do we actually lay down our self-will, you know, it really comes through just the normal Christian practices. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, one of these famous verses, if anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily 
and follow me. This is what Jesus says is the essence of Christianity. The essence of what it means to follow him is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, to deny yourself is not to deny your interests. It's not to deny your passions. It's not to deny um, you, who, you know, the family that God you know, born you into. It's to deny your affiliation with your own outcomes. Here's what the scripture, that word means. In the Greek, it's like the same word that was used when Peter denied Jesus. So after Jesus was, cruci- was about to be crucified, um, Peter denied Jesus over and over and over again. He denied the affiliation that he had with Jesus. And to not deny yourself means in so many ways that our primary allegiance is not to ourselves, but it is to God, which means it reframes the way that you enter into situations. I'm going to tell you exactly how. Many of you find yourself right now in inopportune situations, and the question we're asking ourselves is, how could something good come out of this for me? I don't want this situation. One of the most difficult switches to make, one of the most mature switches to make, that will take years and years to do, oftentimes, that takes a lot of maturity, it will take a lot of community pushing you towards this point, is to switch that question from, what good is coming out of this for me, versus, God, how are you being glorified through this in my life? It's a much different question to ask. And it's a question that, to keep it all the way live, most of us don't care about. We don't care if God is glorified through our lives. The second thing Jesus says in this scripture is to take up your cross. And crucifixion was a brutal thing. And people were actually forced to carry their own crosses up the hill. It was the final act in which someone showed their complete submission that they were being forced to carry their own instrument of death to their death. And when Jesus says this, he knows he's about to be crucified. He wasn't saying this lightheartedly. It's a call to be as submitted to Christ as a condemned criminal was to his death. And here's the thing that's about, that I love, that's beautiful about the scripture. Nobody wanted to carry their cross. Nobody was looking forward to what they were doing. They did it out of submission anyway. And I think what Jesus wants us to get is this, to follow him, To experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit means that we follow after Jesus even if we don't want to take that step. For all of us, I've often said that discipleship is obedience to the next step. There are steps that God wants you to take. You might not know what that step will take you. The thing right in front of you might feel kind of painful to make that step. And Jesus is calling us in that if we want to experience a fullness of life in the Spirit, we need to move in this direction And now, you know, the only way that I can muster up the strength to actually do this um, is through the daily act of praying and laying down my will to God's will. You know, one of the challenges of our culture right now, I call it, we live in a day that's like where authenticity is really valued and overvalued, which means most of us don't pray because we say we don't know how to pray. But like Jesus told us how to pray. Like if you're wondering how you can pray, Matthew 6 says this, therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I've heard that different traditions pray differently, and there's one tradition called the Quakers that they uh, pray even using their hands to signal different things. So when they're praying that your kingdom come, their hands are up to receive everything that God wants to do in their lives. And when they say, your will be done, they turn their hands down and they're letting go of their wills for their lives. One of the most powerful things you could do this week is to pray the Lord's Prayer over your life. 
and to be in a position where you allow God and you lay down your self-will over your life. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this week, I want you doing two things. I want you praying the Lord's Prayer daily, pausing in each line of Matthew 6 of what God is inviting you to and how you can lay down your self-will for his will. And I want us to spend some time, again, journaling what are the things that you are attached to? What are the outcomes that you are attached to in your life? You know, for some of you also, um, one of the things that we really want to emphasize here at Renaissance are the opportunities that people have to move in obedience and follow Jesus with the entirety of their lives. And baptism is a symbol of that. And on March 26th, that Sunday, during the 1130 service, we are having that baptism class for anybody who has not already been baptized and wants to make that declaration that, Jesus, I want to let go of the rope and I want to trust you with my life. So I hope you'll sign up for that on our connection card. I'll talk to one of the people in the prayer team about that after service. And here's, here's the scripture that gives me comfort that allows me to pray, your will be done. It's a scripture in, in, in Romans where Paul says, if you did not withhold Jesus from us, how will you not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Meaning that the way that you and I could muster up the strength and the ability to even ask God for his will to be done in our lives is to look at Jesus on the cross and to say, God, if you did not spare Jesus from me, then clearly you want the best for me. And God wants to remind us through the crucifixion of what he has done for us that nothing at all of creation can separate us from his love. And that voice in your ears that, tell you, that tells you that God's will for your life is bad, it's the voice of the enemy. The Holy Spirit wants to lead you. He wants to guide you into truth. And he's inviting us to take the slow, arduous process of laying down our will for his will. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, I pray that this week and every week, we can take small steps in the direction of emptying ourselves so that we can be full of the Holy Spirit. Remind us that you are wise, wiser than we could ever be. You are good, better and more pure than we could ever be. Your will has stood the test of time. Your knowledge is something that we could never fully comprehend. Jesus, help us to look at you on the cross and remember your goodness to us. Holy Spirit, give us the gentle whisper for us to have the courage to lay down our own self-will, our own outcomes, and say, even if I don't get that, I'm still going to follow you. Even if that doesn't happen in the time and the way that I want it, I'm still going to live my life to glorify you. And in doing so, Lord, may we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit.